followed us the light of the star more than 2,000 years ago. Today we follow a different kind of star. Today we follow the light of Jesus towards the most abundant life. This Christmas season we're exploring not just the birth of Jesus, but we're exploring the life, the teachings, and ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus and how that makes a difference in our lives. This Christmas season, we are being reminded of the most important lessons of Jesus's life. Because if we just focus on the birth of Jesus, we might miss out on the bigger, deeper, more beautiful love that God has for us. You see, it's in the person of Jesus that God shows us his perfect love. God didn't have to do anything for us. But instead, God chooses to give his son, not just to teach us what life could really be like, but to lead us into the most abundant life. We believe that the most abundant life is one that is lived in full surrender to Jesus as Lord. And we believe that that's only possible because Jesus laid down his life so that your sins, your mistakes would not be counted against you, but that you would ultimately live an eternally um, blessed life with God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can be here and share this word together. And so we pray now that you would silence all of the voices in our hearts, in our minds, and in our souls, that you would make us fully present to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning's teaching is titled, Love Your Neighbor as Yourself. And the question that I want to begin with is, do we really need another sermon on the fact that we need to learn to love people? That's like the easiest teaching in the Bible. Everyone knows that we're supposed to love one another. That's the easiest lesson. That's the first thing we learn. That's what we teach our children in children's story. So do we really need another sermon on how to love one another? My answer is yes. Everyone can use a, a, a lesson on how to love others better. Couples who make vows and promises to love one another until the day they breathe their last breath, even they sometimes need help as to how to love one another. It's the easiest message in the Bible to grasp that even a two-year-old can understand that we must learn to love one another. Yet humanity is startlingly bad at living this out. So yes, we do need another message on how to love one another. Especially because as we look around, there is so much hate and indifference in this world. Which isn't really that surprising. It's not that startling that there is so much hate in this world. But what is surprising and what is sad and what is heartbreaking is that so much of this hate comes from people who profess to love well. So much of the indifference comes from people who call themselves Christians. So yes, we do need another sermon on how to love. Because why so many people dislike Christians and why so many people dislike the church? Because it's filled with people that don't know how to love well. Now I do believe that in Orange we try to be intentional about loving well, but even we mess up. Even we need a reminder as to how we can love well. And it's not just that we don't necessarily love well, but sometimes we become indifferent. Because we're really good at loving people that we like, right? Wives don't answer that question. <laughs> but it's true. We have more of a motivation, more of a disposition to love the people that we like when it's convenient. But this is not the way of Scripture. The Bible calls us to love in a better way. 
a way that is modeled after the one who loves us so unconditionally that he gave his life for you and me. We are called to live our lives in such a way that is sacrificially loving others, even when it's not convenient. A love that goes above and beyond what's expected. A love that goes beyond our comfort zones. A love that challenges your political affiliations, stretches your philosophical ideologies, and ultimately leads you to act and love in such a way that is modeled after the sacrificial love of God. So, if the Christian life was like a symphony, I think a symphony usually has four movements. I don't know what that means, but there's like four different parts. I think probably with praise could explain that to us better. But if the Christian life was like a symphony, it wouldn't have four movements. It would have simply two movements. And this is movement number one. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So there's two different groups of people that are mentioned here. There are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, for, for those of you who have been in church a long time, you probably know the difference. Before our guest, let us break this down. I hope none of you can find yourself in this description, by the way. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were the really, really, really religious people, the holy rollers. They were the annoying people that are always quick to point out all of the things that you are doing wrong and make you a bad Christian. They're usually the ones that don't enjoy life very much, so they don't want you to enjoy life. They were like the hallway monitors in class, always telling people to stop running or go back to class. They were the judgmental people who tell you what the Bible says simply to chastise you and to reprove you, yet willingly neglecting the parts of the Bible that speak against their own behavior. The Pharisees had very little love and no grace for people. So that's one group. The Sadducees were the people that were experts in the law, and we're not talking about experts in the law like a courtroom, but the law of Scripture, so the first five books of the Bible and the Old Testament, but mostly those first five books, the Torah. And the Sadducees were like the theologians. And so if it wasn't in those first five books of the Bible, then it wasn't true. So you had these two different groups of people in the first century that were teachers and that were religious people. And what we find in the first four books of the New Testament in the Gospels is that these two groups of people were always trying to challenge Jesus. They were always trying to stump Jesus and get him to say something that was so heretical or something that the Bible didn't say so that they could punish him and even stone him for that. Here's the problem that they had with Jesus. Jesus came from a region called Galilee. And in Galilee, or rather in the first century, there was a saying that nothing good could come from Galilee. Because in Galilee, there were half-breeds. There were Jewish people that mixed with other, with other um, I guess, races. And so they were looked upon as only half-Jewish or half-good. It was in Galilee where the outcasts and the marginalized were sent. It was in this place where nothing good could come from there. So when all of a sudden Jesus comes out of that place... When Jesus comes from Galilee and begins to teach from the Bible and from the scriptures that these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they had ownership of it. They, were, they said, we know what it says. And all of a sudden, Jesus is using the same words, the same verses, and yet he is teaching a different kind of message. They had a problem. Because we always have a problem when people challenge the status quo. 
We always have a problem when people challenge what we believe to be true. Jesus was saying things like, I am the one that the Old Testament was talking about. He, said the, he, he read in Isaiah this list of the, of, the, of the description of what the Messiah that the Jewish people were waiting for. And he says, this, the, the reading, what, is it, what did he say? He goes, the reading of this has been fulfilled right here, right now. Jesus was saying, I am the one you were waiting for. But they, but they weren't looking for someone like Jesus. They didn't want someone from Galilee. They wanted someone from a priestly or royal family in the Jewish nation. They wanted somebody that was going to gather up a great military that would come and destroy the Roman Empire and take the city of Jerusalem back. Because for them, they believed that it was in Jerusalem that God would ultimately meet them and fulfill them and restore the kingdom to them. But a few weeks ago, if you weren't here, you can catch it online. We talked about that the kingdom that Jesus was establishing, the rule of the kingdom, wasn't one that was going to look like any kind of government, but rather it is one that is fueled by love and service towards one another. Jesus, as he would go from town to town, would say the kingdom of God is here, it is at hand, because God was beginning something new, something miraculous in the person of Jesus. And so we go on to the next verse. And this religious teacher, this Sadducee says, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? So in the first five books of the Bible, of all of the laws and all of the rules that are there, which is the greatest? He wasn't there to actually learn from Jesus. He wasn't calling him teacher because he truly believed that Jesus was a religious teacher. He was simply, his motivation was to test Jesus. And Jesus responds by saying this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. This is the answer they would have been waiting to hear. This was the right answer on paper. This is the thing that in Deuteronomy, the Bible tells us that every, everybody, every Jewish person, especially as little kids, this is what they were taught. It's called the Shema, and everyone would learn this. This is still central to our, our Jewish brothers and sisters. If you've ever been to um, a Jewish person's house, oftentimes they have on the doorways of their house these little things, right? And if you're not looking, you might miss it. Um, but they're there. I think they're, oh, man, what is it called? Is it a mezuzah? Is that what it is? Yeah, okay, just making sure. And, and they have that, and usually written on that is the words of the Shema. And because they are to be reminded that when they come and when they go from their house, they are supposed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul. That was the foundation of their life. That was the lens by which they tried to interpret everything. And that love was the kind of love that we call agape love. It's the kind of love that you love without condition. That means nobody has to meet any conditions. You just must simply love God. The truth is you can only really love someone that you know. And so Jesus often would refer to the Old Testament in John 17, and I don't think I put this up on the, no, I don't. Um, in John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus talks about eternal life, and he says, Eternal life is that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we, you and I, can only truly love a God that we know. Now, granted, it's a little bit harder to know a God that we can't really see, right? It's a little bit harder. But one of the things that we have is we have the Bible, and the Bible is that place where we can go to, and, and we learn about God as God the Father in the Old Testament, where he's present, always present, always leading his people, 
always being gracious towards his people. And so we learn about God then, but what's even more interesting is Jesus says, for you to know God and me, Jesus, whom he has sent. And we can know about Jesus because there are four books in the New Testament that talk about Jesus. If you truly want to know about Jesus and the, and the perfect love of God and the perfect revelation of God in this man, Jesus, we would come to the scriptures and learn all of these stories. It's why I get up and preach every Saturday about this Jesus, because I believe that we begin to feel the presence of the kingdom when we have this relationship with Christ. I understand that it's not the easiest thing in the world to have a relationship with someone that doesn't talk back to us, right? If we're in a relationship and there's no communication, it's hard and it's painful, and that's not really the kind of relationship we want. But what we understand about Jesus is that that relationship, although we can't, I don't think, audibly hear the voice of Jesus or of God, the Bible tells us that the way God communicates to us is much more subtly. It's in silence, it's in that still, small voice God speaks to us in our conscience, and we have the Bible to begin that relationship with. The Bible has so much to teach us about Jesus and about God. So when we love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, and our soul, it's about opening ourselves to the presence of the God that is everywhere all the time. It's not that God is only present in this place here. I think something special happens when we gather on Sabbath morning and we worship and we praise But God isn't more present here than he is everywhere else. God made this world. Why would he choose to confine himself to buildings? The Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is among you and within you because the spirit of God dwells within you. We we went over this like six months ago in Romans. There's sermons on the internet about that from our church. God is always present. So we can be open to his love and his mercy and his blessings so movement number two, movement number one is to love God and establish that relationship with God. And movement number two is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It seems so often that when we look at the news that Christians often spend more time trying to be the moral police and we forget that we are to be the light in a world of darkness. Advent, the season that we celebrate now, is about not allowing the darkness to overcome the light. Love, our, to love our neighbor is more than just to have warm, fuzzy feelings towards someone, because that's difficult to do anyway. But to love our neighbor means acting towards others with their good, their well-being, their fulfillment as the primary motivation and goal for our deeds. Such love takes no regard of their perceived merit or worth or value. So when we love others, it's not because they deserve it. It's not because they are a part of our tribe. It's not because they believe the way we do. But to truly love others the way the Bible tells us to love others is to look for their betterment. Love is something to be done, not something to be felt. It must be the motivation for our actions. And how you treat others is evidence of the relationship that you have with God. Which means that if we don't particularly love well, it doesn't make us bad people. It just means that perhaps we have to strengthen our relationship with God. We must follow the examples of God and of Jesus and how he loved others. So there's another verse here that I want to share. 
And it says, we love because he, God, first loved us. We don't love out of our goodness. We're not just awesome people that know how to love well, but we love because we want to model it after the love of God. Those who say, I love God, but hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or a sister whom they have seen cannot love a God whom they have not seen. And it's hard to love people because we've been hurt by people. So it's hard to love when we've been hurt. It's hard to love when people are unkind because it requires us to forgive. And that is painful because sometimes forgiveness feels like a death. Next week, we're going to talk about forgiveness and how to forgive well. And it's a special Sabbath next Saturday because Pastor Brett and I will be doing team teaching. And we're going to take you through what it looks like to live a life that knows how to forgive others. But loving is a very difficult thing to do. The motivation of which, though, comes from the love that God has for us. So I want to read one more, past, like one more little story. I want to read one more story that is not up on the screen. And it goes back to the beginning. Of the, of the sermon where we talked about the greatest commandment. So if you have the Pew Bible, we're going to go out of the New International Version for this one. Go to Luke chapter 10. And it's going to demonstrate all of what I've just been teaching in one story. So Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, a Sadducee, right? The same, kind of, the same part of the story we read earlier, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's already something wrong with that question because he believes that there is something that he can actually do to gain eternal life. But Jesus, in his way of doing things, you know, and, and I think what we don't realize is Jesus often spends more time asking questions than he does teaching. So if you read the Gospels, you'll begin to see that. But this is what he says, what is written in the law? And he replied, and how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you shall live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So it was done. The conversation was over, and he will live to regret this next part of the story, and you'll see why. Verse 30, remember, Sadducee expert in the law, a theologian. These are the people that we would go to like commentaries nowadays, right? Here's what he says, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So a priest is exactly what it sounds like, a, a Jewish, probably a Jewish priest who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, perhaps to do a priestly service. Maybe he was going to do a teaching or a preaching or, or some kind of priestly role that he was supposed to do. Or maybe he was coming from Jerusalem, right, where he had just done his job. This was a person that knew the scriptures, that knew what God commanded of them. And maybe he was a really great preacher and maybe everybody liked him. But when it came for him to live out the words of scripture, he did what most of us do when we see a homeless person standing on the side of the road. We pretend like we just got a phone call 
we play with our radio. We look the other way. Or we run the red light to turn so we don't have to wait. This isn't a sermon about whether they're lazy or not or whether they should be working or not. Because we don't know their stories. And second of all, Jesus says, give to all who ask. But he did what most of us probably would have done. He just kept walking. Perhaps he was going to perform some spiritual or some religious rituals where if he touched someone that was bleeding, he became unclean. So they had these spiritual laws in the first, in the first century where he couldn't be unclean, so he couldn't touch someone with blood. So maybe that's what it was, but it still doesn't change the fact that he did the wrong thing. Verse 32, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay, so a Levite, also from the priestly clan of the Old Testament, right? The Levites were the people that God had set apart to be holy in a certain kind of way, and they were supposed to serve and do these religious things. And even a Levite, maybe a first century Sadducee, who read the scriptures and know what the scripture says, even they passed on the other side of the road. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he, was, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Uh, other Bible translations say that he took compassion on him. So here's where I want to stop for just 30 seconds. A Samaritan, the Jewish people in the first century called Samaritans dogs because they were half Jewish and half something else. They were from a part in the region where when other foreigners would come in, they would take wives and well, mostly just wives, intermarry, and have what, they would, what the first century people would call mixed breeds. Like, so it's really bad. Everyone hated the Samaritans. They were, the Jewish people wouldn't even talk to them, wouldn't even acknowledge them. Now, I'm not going to tell you what today's modern-day Samaritans are like. I think you can come to your own conclusions about that. There are people, the Samaritans were the people that were easy to hate and chastise and marginalize and outcast because of who they were. So I'll let you do the homework as to who those people might be today, how we Christians teach those outsiders. But it was that Samaritan who stopped and bandaged him up, moved with compassion. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, or two days' worth of work, and gave them to the innkeeper. Now think about this. Could you afford to give two days' worth of work in your life? Now, if you're on a salary, it might be harder to kind of understand how much that would be. Um, but if you're on an hourly employee, you know exactly how much you make each day. Think about when you get paid, would it be so easy for you to just take those 300 or $200 to give to someone to take care of them? The next day, he took out those two coins and he gave it to the innkeeper. And he said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have had. And Jesus asks, them, asks him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. Jesus said, be like the dogs that you guys hate. Live your life in such a way where you always try to be merciful towards others. And it's difficult to do that. And we, we don't always get it right. But the thing about Christianity is that it's a marathon. 
And though we may not make the best decisions today, we still have the next day and the next day to try to make better decisions that will be honoring and bring glory to God. So do we need another sermon on how to love one another well? I think the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, we need another sermon on how to love well, especially when we've been hurt. And I think if you come back next Saturday, you will look at how do we learn to forgive those that, don't, that we feel don't deserve to be forgiven. But as for now, as we march towards Christmas in just a few days, as Advent is the light in the darkness, it is a reminder that you, as a son and daughter of God, must reflect the light of Jesus in this world. I was sitting, and this is the last story, I was sitting next to a lady that she said she was 72 years old on the airplane ride earlier this week. And, you know, they always, people always ask if you're friendly enough, you know, hey, what do you do for work? And so I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher. And she says, well, and then I get this question often, as a, as a preacher and as a pastor, what do you make of all of the stuff that's going on in the world? And I said, well, it's, it's painful, and I think as a pastor's perspective, it's just evil that happens. And so she says, well, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to fix it? And I said, and my response was, and, and I knew what I was preaching this week, I said, well, I'm not sure that we can fix it, but I think for myself as a Christian, all I can do is learn to love well and do the best that I can. And I think that if Christians, we loved well enough, things would be different. But I think the, the problem is we don't, we don't pursue love. We just pursue our own opinions and our own desires and what we think is right. And sometimes, oftentimes, that's the wrong way to begin a conversation. And that's the wrong way to do things. As Christians, we must always be the light that reflects Christ in a world of darkness. And as Christians, we must be followers of Jesus. And just as he was a light, we must also be a light.
please stand for our closing hymn. Father, thank you for allowing us to feel your presence here this morning. We pray that we would always and everywhere feel your presence. And as we get closer to Christmas, just a few days away, in the midst of the food, of the traditions, and of the gifts, that we would be reminded of your gifts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <laughs> 